So what's been the hardest decision you'd have to, you've had to make so far? Firing some of my best friends. I think when you're an entrepreneur, it's really, really common to, um, you know, hire, hire people that you've been friends with for a long time. You love them, you trust them. It, you know, it's, it's a, a big line, I think, between people you maybe you can be successful with in, in your personal life and people you can be successful with in your business life. And um, the boundaries that you may have with other people don't exist. So I think frequently things cannot be handled well. And then when they escalate, um, you know, you lose a friend. Um, you know, I've had some situations, uh, obviously I don't want to get too in the details of them, but I had to stop being friends with people that were extremely, really close to me. And, and you know, it took years before we became friends again, because, you know, sometimes the, the, the kind of breaking up over work, it just, it just creates too much tension, you know, in the friendship. And I always find that to be, um, you know, really sad, frankly. Why don't we start by saying, like, tell everyone a little bit about what your business does. And if you don't mind saying how much you guys uh, do on average, Priya. Uh, so uh, Chameleon Collective is a company I founded in 2015. Uh, we work primarily for the investor community, for private equity firms and, and, and other investors like venture capitalists. Um, and we effectively help uh, companies that are going through intense periods of transformation or intense periods of growth. Uh, by helping them um, with their commercial uh, focus, which typically falls in this world of sales, marketing, or digital, typically e-commerce. Uh, the company effectively has three core divisions. The first one is where we started. We uh, have an, uh, about 45 interim leaders, I think heads of sales, heads of marketing, or heads of digital um, that we can airdrop into different companies as needed. Uh, we have um, a secondary group that is... Uh, all kind of executionally focused subject matter experts that can support those leaders or our clients' leaders in executing the strategies and plans we've put into place. And then we also have uh, a full team of recruiters. Um, and so our value prop, in essence, is that we can airdrop in these kind of amazing commercially focused leaders and, and, and entire teams underneath them when a company is having to scale or maybe the internal team had been replaced because they weren't up to, up to snuff. Um, and then while we're in there, we can actually hire the permanent teams and basically peel ourselves out of the way as we start to onboard uh, the new team. It's a little bit, um, you know, when you start dealing with investors who want to grow first and have plenty of money to spend to make that growth happen, um, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, being asked to drive a bus at 100 miles an hour and change all four wheels on the bus without slowing down. Um, and that's been a big success for us. So since we started it, um, we're getting very, very close to crossing three million a month in revenue now. Um, so it's, uh, we were on the Inc. 5000 last year, and I'm quite confident we're going to rank again this year. Nice, congrats! I think last year when we spoke, you were at two million a month. So that's a huge, a huge jump in like, in like a year's time. Yeah, it's still growing like growing like wildfire. Yeah. So nice, congrats! Thanks, man. So what? made you excited about starting this company and what keeps you excited about this company? I hope I give this best slash strangest answer anyone ever gives you, the, if you when you ask this question. Um, I wasn't excited about starting a company at all, let alone uh, this company. You know, when I started Chameleon Collective, it wasn't really even about Chameleon Collective. It was, uh, I was in a place where I was, I was angry I would say I was disillusioned with, um, you know, corporate America in the sense that I didn't really want to go take another traditional job. Um, I 
didn't uh, want to start another company in a, at least a traditional sense. I didn't want all the payroll and the expenses and the management and you know, uh, work, you know, workers that just kind of created stress in my life. And I very much went into Chameleon Collective saying, you know what, I'm not going to start a company at all. I'm just going to go be this independent mercenary gun for hire for the private equity and venture capital world. Um, I think because I was angry and, you know, kind of not happy with the way that things worked, I was really determined to try and find a, a better way. Um, and so I think what I got really passionate about was uh, completely rethinking the way a company should be structured. Um, and I did that because, kind of bluntly, because I was kind of angry with how everything worked and I didn't want this. I wasn't setting out to build a company. I just didn't really give a crap uh, if I was doing anything that was non-traditional because I wasn't planning to build something to sell. I wasn't planning, you know, uh, to, to build this kind of big business and, and scale it. I just wanted to make myself happy. And I felt like there had to be a better way to work. I think the irony of all that is that through that process, I ended up building the best business I've ever been involved in because I refused to kind of do anything the normal way. Now I'm extremely passionate about it um, because it makes me feel really good. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's an unusual way to get to the best business I've ever been involved in. Um, but maybe sometimes, um, you know, you just have to be in a, an odd headspace to try a new, a new path. Fair enough. So has there ever been a point since you started this company, non-company that you regretted it, that you wished it would stop or that you wanted to, to, to not continue with it? That's a great question. Um, I, I have had that experience with every other company I've ever been involved in, except Chameleon Collective. Um, so I can tell you, you know, this is, uh, I guess, my fourth kind of well-known company. I've had lots of other little things I've done in between. And I think I always go through that kind of like, you know, classic entrepreneurial, like, hell yeah, I'm going to take over the world. And then like, you know, it doesn't quite work the right way or the stuff starts to drive you a little crazy. Your clients drive you a little crazier. You don't nail product market fit. You start feeling kind of sad for yourself. Um, I've, I've never had that um, moment with Chameleon Collective, not even for one moment. Okay. I think you're the only person that's ever said that they haven't had that. So that's cool. Isn't that what I get it? Like when I told you everything is different about this company for me, I, I really mean that. And, and I think the reason why I don't feel that way is the way that Chameleon Collective is structured for anyone who hasn't seen the other interview that we did together, Sean, is, um, you know, we're effectively a decentralized organization. Uh, we have no formal hierarchy. We use a derivative management style called holacracy. We're effectively employee owned. Uh, so, you know, huge, huge ownership stake by, by our team. And, and that lack of hierarchy means that I have, um, I effectively work in a company where there are no employees and no bosses. We're all, we're all equal in that environment. And I think because of that, it doesn't cradle as an entrepreneur, it's very, it's very normal for all the stress to kind of roll back to you as the founder or the co-founder or the CEO or whatever. Um, yeah, sure. I have stress like everyone else, but I, I share that burden um, with the, you know, the members of the collective. And I find that because people, um, you know, in our model are given more reward, but they also have to assume more risk, it makes everyone more accountable. And so I feel like I'm in this group where everyone is really accountable 
And it only feels, I feel like as an entrepreneur, it only feels soul crushing when you're the only person enduring the burden. Uh, but when you're doing it as a group, you feel that things feel, or as a collective, sorry, can't resist. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't, I don't feel like the burden ever feels that, that painful. So how did you decide who can have equity and who doesn't? Because obviously, since you're the one that started it, like it, there is an aspect of control that you had to allow, you know, to give up in order for these people to yeah. get the equity and to have the responsibility. So how did you decide who deserves that? Or so, so, again, another great question. Um, I'm going to go on a small tangent and I'm going to, I'm going to riff on a little bit about what I think is kind of wrong with traditional companies. And I'm going to tell you how I solved this problem. So, uh, all of us have heard that we've, you know, in some form or the other, whether you're in the media or talking to friends or whatever, they talk about the system being rigged, you know, and some people talk about that in politics. Some people talk about that in economics and capitalism. Um, I think to me, what that basically means is that, and I'm a, you know, diehard capitalist to be extra clear. Um, I feel though that there is a, an issue where the more successful you become, the more money and power you create for yourself and the more power and money you create for yourself, the more ability you have to effectively change the rules of the system so that you can make more money and more power, which then allows you to create more changes in the system. And that's how we end up with this kind of great disparity that we see um, in, in, in our society. And so, um, so I think to make the system not rigged, you have to have a standardized rule set around how everything works and not allow that rule set to change ever. This is why people are so passionate about the blockchain, worth noting. You know, even with all the crazy, you know, quote unquote, crypto winter we're going through here in uh, you know, July of 2022. Um, but uh, what we, when I did with Chameleon Collective was I didn't decide who uh, gets equity and who doesn't get equity. What I did was I worked with the early members of Chameleon Collective to align on a system that decides who gets equity. And it has nothing to do with what I, who I feel should get it or who should not get it. It is a completely based on people's merits and what they do for Chameleon Collective. So it's a rule-based system that we fanatically adhere to and don't let anyone play, change or play around with. So I think in a normal company, what happens is, you know, you get some uh, you know, big fish who comes in and they go, well, I've done this and I've done that. And I've done all these amazing things in my career. And because of that, I'm not even going to join your company unless you give me X. Um, we kind of go, cool, don't really give a shit. <laughs> uh, here's our system. All of us use the same system. And it's completely based on what you do moving forward not based on what you have done in the past. Um, and so it basically is a calculation of um, contribution that people have made to the company in terms of their level of effort, and also effectively how much actual business they run through Chameleon Collective. And that calculates on an annual basis into effectively uh, generating options for an option pool that effectively represents 80% of the company. Um, and, and that remaining 20 is actually something I kept for myself. That's the only thing I've ever done for myself with Chameleon Collective um, as the founder. Uh, worth noting, every other company I've ever owned in my life, I, I owned 80 and everyone else owned 20 before the investors got involved. Um, this is the inverse of that. 
Um, but it's, it's completely fair. It's completely egalitarian. And it has nothing to do with my opinion. And that's why no one ever feels like I can rig the system for myself or for anyone else's benefit. Well, it's pretty heavy, but obviously it's working because you're, your company is growing crazy fast. So everyone's happy, it sounds like. Thanks, man. It's, it's again, it's, it's, uh, I think there's just a lot of people that feel this way. And you see it, you know, you see people talking about it all the time. And, and, a, and a great reflection of that is there are certain members of Chameleon Collective who don't have these big, giant, fancy prior roles that they've had, you know, that some of the other chameleons have had with these, you know, we've had, we've got just for again, people that don't know me or Chameleon Collective, you know, there are people in our company with these incredible, like I used to be the CMO of billion dollar companies, multi-billion dollar companies. And then there are quite literally people in here that, you know, didn't have any C-suite titles and are turning over incredible financial numbers at Chameleon Collective. And they own more equity than than some of these other guys with the big fancy titles. And when I say guys, by the way, I mean any gender, just to be clear. Uh, but um, you know, it, it's and I think that's amazing. I think it's powerful because they came in and it wasn't about what they did. They just they they hustle. They 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 work in the system. They understand how to be successful in our model, and they're rewarded for that. Not because I happen to like them a lot personally. I'm curious uh, about the equity thing. Is it like? At the end of the year, they get like a dividend based on how much equity they have, or is it like the company buys back their shares and at the end of the year, everyone starts over at zero again and they have to earn it again? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, I, I, I'll share as much as I can without getting into kind of the, the more confidential parts of Community Collective. Um, we basically, uh, every year, you we do a tally and then based on the effectively the value you created through our kind of documented formula, um, you gain a certain number of options and each year there's an ever increasing number of options in that option pool. So in year one, if there were a hundred options, uh, and you owned one of them, then you owned 1% of that 80% of the company in year two, if you got two more and there was an, another hundred issued or whatever, then you'd have, you know, three divided by 200. And so, and so basically. Um, what it does is that it, was, it is specifically designed to make sure that anyone who contributed to the value of Camillion Collective is recognized for that, but it disproportionately favors people that remain in Camillion Collective. So if you showed up for one year and you had a huge year, great, cool. You should be respected and honored for that. And you'll have some equity in the company if we ever go to exit. But the people that are here every year, 10 years, you know, whatever, consistently, um, you know, earning through the company and adding value to the company that they're going to maintain a higher percentage within the business. So you brought me to another interesting point, which is you mentioned potential exit. Now, mm -hmm. I did one of these interviews yesterday, obviously, you know, as it, as these episodes come out, it does, it's not going to be yesterday, but mm -hmm. the last person I interviewed his company, he's been running it for 20 years and this year they're on track mm -hmm. to do 28 million. He has awesome. no desire to sell this ever. Like he wants to to die in the chair, basically, right? Like he wants to run this company. Yeah. The yeah. guy I interviewed before him, his company did twenty five million the year that he sold it. He had also been running that company for twenty years, and he was like, "I just turned sixty three. I want to retire." So, mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, what would make you want to exit this company, if ever? That's a great question. Um, one of the biggest reasons I think Camus Collective has been 
so successful is that uh, compared to you know, some of the other things I've worked on um, is I, I don't, I, I personally, and I can't speak for the rest of the collective, uh, I personally have no desire to, to do an exit. I've, I've done that before. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done it a couple of times now and all I ended up doing, because uh, I'm extremely passionate about company culture, all I found was that you join another company, you effectively get assimilated in their culture, and then it's not that thing that maybe you loved anymore. And then all of a sudden you need to go feel like a need to go do another one. Um, so I look at Chameleon Collective like home. Uh, I don't really want to mess with home, you know, and, um, uh, I, but I also, even, and I, I want to be clear in saying, you never say never, right? So yes, we needed a model within Chameleon Collective to make sure that people felt that they were getting value and equity in the business because it would be unfair if 10 years from now I changed my mind or someone makes us some crazy offer that I'm like, hey, just kidding, I'd love to sell. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and you know, the people that were all part of that process need to make sure that they're, uh, that yeah, it's fair, it's fair to everyone of all, fair and reasonable being the name of the game. Uh, that being said, you know, I have other entrepreneurial ventures that I work on that I'd love to sell. And, and I'm trying to build those in a very different way so that they're easy to sell, easy, easy to buy, uh, you know, great margins, you know, highly optimized for that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> but I think as an entrepreneur, just taking the more the let's call it the psychological or the emotional side of it, um, I think that um, some of the most common reasons I've heard and, and, I, and at least in my own past, like my first company, I felt that I sold uh, second company I sold because I was tired. That was literally the reason. I was just tired. I just couldn't. I couldn't keep it up. We talked about that exhaustion, you know, a moment ago, and and, and how that impacts people. I just and I was, you know, fifteen, twenty years younger than I am now, um, and I was just tired because again, but it was also a traditional model, and all all pass led back to me, and I bared the weight, uh, a huge amount of weight for the stresses of the company, and I just couldn't take it anymore. It was exhausting. Um, and so sometimes people do it cause they're just tired. Sometimes people want to do it because, um, they want to retire. Um, I could see that motivating me uh, at some point and just saying, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to check out. My father worked too, is in his eighties. Um, I don't think that I would want to do this till I was, you know, in my, in my eighties, I'd like to advise startups and other entrepreneurs and stuff probably until I'm in my seventies or so, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I don't think I'm in a big rush. I think the biggest metric is people free, most often sell because they want security for their family and things like that. Um, and they want that peace of, peace of mind, um, economic peace of mind. Um, I just want to be happy. Um, and that's actually my biggest motivator. So if I somehow think that selling would allow me to be more happy, then yeah, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, just give me 10 seconds of your time. I really appreciate you listening to the episode so far, and I hope you're loving it. And if you are, I would love to ask you to subscribe to the channel because what we do is a lot of work. And every week we bring you a new guest and a new story. And what we do requires so much love so that we can bring you something amazing. And every week we're trying really hard to get better guests, that have better stories and improve our ability to tell their stories. So your subscription lets the algorithm know that what we're doing is fantastic and no commitment, it's free to do. And if you don't like what we're doing later on, you can always unsubscribe. And either way, we would love a like if you don't feel like subscribing at this time. Thank you very much. And we'll take you back to the show now.
So if that's your big motivator, what's your biggest fear? Hmm. Uh, excluding, <laughs> excluding all my existential paranoia about the world. Uh, I'll take, I'll, I'll scratch all those off that. So I don't look like too much of a paranoid nut. Um, I think my biggest fear is, is, um, I mean, it sounds overly simple to say unhappy, but I think, uh, I don't like feeling trapped would probably be the biggest thing. So sometimes I feel like when you sell, um, you you're at the mercy of other people. So I think as an entrepreneur, it's very common to want to have control over your own destiny. I think that's a really, really big motivator in people that are entrepreneurs. This, you know, I, I find that um, I'm, I'm able to kind of go along on, on the ride with other people. Uh, but then at some point, I always feel like, you know, my vision will end up disagreeing with their vision. And, and there's very few people that I have this kind of like, feel like I've got like lifelong vision alignment with. Um, and then when that happens, that as an entrepreneur, is just as my personality type, I really struggle with that. And I think when you work for someone else, especially if it's a full-time job and that's your only source of income, you can feel really trapped. And I, I know people who are listening to this podcast right now can really identify with this, that they've got a bad boss or a bad manager. You don't even have to be an entrepreneur who's selling. And you're like, well, I can't do anything. You know, this person's a prick or they don't, or I hate working for them or whatever it is. And, and then you're like, but I have a bills to pay and I got kids to feed and I got mortgage to pay and I got car payments and whatever else. And I don't know where else I can find another job, especially when you start going into like this potential upcoming recession that everyone seems to be talking about. And then, it, and then, and feeling trapped is a horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. Um, so I don't like to feel trapped. And I, I even if I'm like, uh, you know, driving off the, uh, driving the, driving the car off the edge of the cliff, I'm still way happier as long as I'm driving. <laughs> Fair enough. I remember when the pandemic started, I was in Vietnam and I was afraid that I was going to be trapped because I knew that the building I was in was 46 stories tall. It had a central air conditioning unit that was spread across the entire building. It, it supplied air to everywhere. So if there's bad air somewhere, it's going to the rest of the building. And the elevators can be electronically sealed and turned off, which means they could prevent you from leaving your floor. And the stairwell was also electronically sealed and only opened in the case of fire, which means oh, no. if they want to, they could jail you in your, in your floor for as long as they wanted. And my thought was no. So <laughs> hell no. <laughs> so like, as soon as it kind of announced, I told, I told my fiance and Alex wife, like, no, we're, we're le or actually we we're boyfriend, girlfriend. And we, yeah. And I was like, no, we're leaving now. Like within 48 hours, I had my shit packed and we were in her hometown and we had a yeah. house and we had control over the front door. Yeah. It was a, a landed house, like the, you know, land on all sides. And I was like, it's important. Yeah. It's peace of mind. You're controlling your own destiny. Um, for the, and those of you who follow your podcast, I always think it's super cool that how many places you live, by the way. So hats off to you uh, with your, with your global adventures. Thanks. I typically spend about five years in a country, something like that. So this whole thing with Portugal works out quite well. International man of mystery. Except I don't have a British accent, so. <laughs> you can work on that. I'm sure there's a YouTube video out there. That will, you can go full Madonna one year top, Sean. I believe in you. <laughs> I'll see about it. 
<laughs> so what's been the hardest decision you'd have to you've had to make so far? Firing some of my best friends. Yeah, I'd say. Do you want to talk yeah, about it? It's, I, I'd say you know I think when you're an entrepreneur, it's really really common to um, you know hire hire people that you've been friends with for a long time. You love them, you trust them. Uh, you know, I see I, the people who I see like start working with their wife or significant other, whatever I think are extremely brave, uh, you know, and, um, it, you know, it's, it's a, a big line, I think between people you, maybe you can be successful with in, in your personal life and people you can be successful in your business life and, um, the boundaries that you may have with other people don't exist. So I think frequently things cannot be handled well. And then when they escalate, um, you know, you lose a friend. Um, you know, I've had some situations, uh, I don't want to go too in the details of them, but where, uh, you know, I had to stop being friends with people that were extremely, really close to me. And, and, you know, it took years before we became friends again, because, you know, sometimes the, the, the kind of breaking up over work, it just, it just creates too much tension, you know, in the friendship. And I always find that to be, um, you know, really sad, frankly. Mm. I hired two people that I was close with and fired them yeah, both. It's rough. Don't do it. <laughs> there there's there's another guy I hired. I I have I have known him for 22 years. And he started 3 years ago. We we had never really worked on anything together kind of. And I wasn't even sure that he could do it. I hired him as the COO. I wasn't sure he could do it, but I knew that I was desperate. I couldn't continue to do the operations and like all of the things I was doing. I just, I couldn't handle it. So I gave him a chance cause it was at the right time where he was fed up with his job and he thought they were going to fire him. And I was like, screw it. Let me just hire him. So I gave him a chance and he has been the best freaking thing to happen awesome. to that company. Yeah, it, look, I'm not saying it can't go right, and I've definitely had, I've got multiple instances where it went right, but yeah, as being the question, being painful, those are the ones. And and I think um, I was chatting with another uh, uh, entrepreneur who I'm a big big fan of, happens to be in town visiting me right now, and uh, we were talking about um, a common trait uh, that was that we can handle almost an infinite amount of of work stress. You know, and that it, it's like, and that kind of stuff does, for the most part, doesn't really phase us. But that um, kind of quote unquote uh, affairs of the heart, whether that's you know, love, you know, love or friends or whatever, like when that goes wrong, it's just crazy stressful. Um, because I think when it, um, when things are uh, more business focused, it's very black and white. You can have a very clear answer, yes or no, and, and about how something works or doesn't work. But as soon as it starts getting any thing that kind of an affair of the heart, the, there's no clear answer on things. So it's harder, I think, just to kind of end it in your mind. And that's the kind of stuff that you find laying yourself, laying in bed, you know, kind of spinning out over, so to speak. And, and, um, and so I think that that's what, those are the ones I find the most, the most painful. For me too. I know whenever I would get into an argument with my ex-wife, like it ruined the rest of my day. I was just thinking like what, what happened and, and how can I, you know, try to resolve the issue when I see her next and like, but like the, the day was, was basically ruined. Like I couldn't think at work. Um, so with that, you kind of brought me to the idea I want to know about next, which is how do you anticipate problems? Hmm. 
That's a great question. Um, look, everyone's personality is 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 different. Um, in my case, uh, uh, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing is, is debatable. I'm pretty obsessive compulsive, uh, so I find that like um, when I when I start thinking about something, I'm I play kind of chess with an idea in my head. And what I mean by that is for any non-chess players out there, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And then if I do this, what will happen then? And if I do that, then they do that, then I'll do this. And then if I do that, then the next person will do this. I'm like, what if I don't do that? And then they do this. And then I'll think out like, you know, every possible scenario for what may happen. Um, and, and I just, just kind of do this. I find myself kind of multitasking doing that. I could be checking my email and running things like this through my head or, you know, walking and running these kind of scenarios through my head. So um, a lot of the times I feel that um, I've anticipated any or, or many, many potential problems. I certainly can't uh, anticipate any potential problem, but I think I, um, I, I, I take, I guess the guidance would be, I take the, the time and the effort to not not do things impulsively, or if I do do them impulsively, then at least I take the time to think about what the repercussions of whatever impulsive thing I just did. And that way, when whatever response happens, I'm not caught off guard, basically. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is, uh, you know, I try and be knowledgeable about any, any subject. I think when you kind of anticipate problems, um, if you don't have some credible and hopeful mastery of a, a subject matter, then you're going to get called on the back foot. Um, I stopped doing businesses. I stopped doing business in place that I have no business in being there. Uh, you know, so if I, if I don't feel like, you know, it, I, I've gotten, I've, over the years I've invested in and been involved in a whole bunch of really random, you know, industries like the trucking world or whatever. And like, I shouldn't have been done that. Like I, I knew nothing about the space. So my ability to anticipate problems, was basically non-existent because I can't, I can't play chess uh, if my knowledge level only lets me play checkers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so I think um, you know you, you got you got to know the space, otherwise you just can't figure out what what may come at you. At the same time, for anyone that's a first-time entrepreneur, you essentially are unable to play chess for any industry because you have exposure to nothing and whatever you decide to do, you literally don't know what you don't know. It's a good point. Um, I would, I'll give a good example just from today though. So like I'm not a developer uh, or by any standards, but I'm a pretty, pretty technical person. I'm working on a new product uh, that requires um, us to start using some different kind of APIs and systems for financial data. Uh, and payment processing and things like that. I'm talking to the team about what I think they should do and, and kind of where I think the product needs to go. But I, I found myself then kind of pouring over different product sites, really taking the time to understand the product features. I'm frequently will call up different options if we have four or five different options and I'll go get product demos from all of them. And I might do those meetings without the developers around so I can ask all the dumb questions that I want to ask so I can get knowledgeable. And so I feel like even if you're a first-time entrepreneur, you may not have the accumulated knowledge a guy with my fantastic haircut has, uh, but you may, uh, you may, you know, it doesn't mean you can't try and get smart, you know? Um, it doesn't mean you can't try and get out there and, and, uh, um, and, uh, and, and, and learn as much as you can. So 
you know, you're not a, a you know a 57th level uh, chess grandmaster or whatever yet, but you can you can certainly you can certainly get in there and start anticipating some of the problems. There's no there's no excuse, no matter how early on you are in your entrepreneurial journey, to go into anything completely blind. In my opinion, what's the most important thing you've ever learned? I want to tell you a rude story. <laughs> it's a, uh, and it was it was the most important thing I've ever learned was uh, something my father said to me once. It was really, really, really good advice. Um, and uh, and as you noted, Sean, at the beginning of the show, my father was a was a pretty respected entrepreneur. He was knighted by the Queen for his entrepreneurial ventures. He was a pr- pretty bright guy. And he was, I think, around 55 years old when he had me. And so we had a pretty big age gap it, it, between us. And he'd, he'd been around been around the block, so to speak. So I think when I'm 20, he's already in his in mid-70s and, and done some really, really incredible stuff. And he and I were uh, really, really close, uh, you know, both the father and son, but I also consider him to be one of my best friends. And we really like to talk about two things. Uh, not everyone understood our relationship, but this is what my dad and I like to talk about. We talked about business. And we talked about women. <laughs> that was the two things we loved to love to geek out on. And uh, one day I came to him for a, a problem that I was having, which was always fell into one of those two uh, categories normally. And uh, I remember telling him this problem and he was very respectful and he didn't interrupt me and he let me tell the story. And I remember him kind of nodding and listening and nodding and listening. And, and he got, um, you know, let me get through his two or three minute story. And, I, and, and he said, looked at me and said, some, I've fucked up things you haven't even thought of yet. And, 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 what, and now he was kind of being half funny, but actually what he said was really profound. And, and what I meant, what it, how I interpreted that and still interpret it this day is, you know, that as many things that I may have been frustrated with or lessons that I may have had to learn that I'm still like, you know, there, there, there's like, there are people out there who, are you know miles ahead of where I may be? Who are, they're going to see these experiences, and and you know there's a million new lessons that I, I have to learn, and that's just part of life, and I just got to get I just got to get through them all, and so it it it, it to me gave me this really high um, what's the word I'm looking for acceptance that I can screw up, and that's perfectly fine, and in fact I can screw up and I can laugh about it even really painful ones. Like maybe I didn't laugh about them at the time, especially some of the very expensive lessons I've learned. Uh, but I laugh about them now. You know, you have to have, you have to have a good sense of humor about these things at some point and be able to, to shrug them off. And if you, you can't kind of recognize that some of these things that you screw up along the way, you know, maybe, maybe they were not, uh, you know, someone mentioned this quote to me last night from Tony Robbins that, you know, these things that happen in life, they're, they're not something that happened to you, but they happen for you um, because they're all these kind of accumulated knowledge that helps you to be a better person or a better entrepreneur or just to kind of shape and define who you are. Um, and for that reason, I, I, I'm not too hard on myself. You know, again, I, I, I've, I've had some really cool things I've been able to do in my career. I've screwed it up a ton of times, um, but I'm really happy. So it's all worked out in the end. What's the most expensive mistake you've made? And if you have a financial number for that, that would be great as well. Yeah, yeah. I was I was actually talking about this last night. So my, my startup guide, you know, I, I had probably, 
500 to 750 of my own money in it. And then I, and then I didn't pay myself for like two years. Uh, so like all the accumulated costs from that. So whatever, you know, easily a million plus dollars, you know, there. Um, so that was expensive. That was a big lesson. I learned a lot of stuff from that, um, from that, uh, uh, you know, company, um, about starting, you know, when to start a company, what kind of companies I should be thinking about uh, focusing on. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it was for me, it was it was like, you know, when, when you go out there and you, I, I think what I, I realized after doing that was kind of understanding what kind of CEO, CEO, uh, CEO, excuse me, I am. I realized that I'm a sales and marketing CEO. My superpower is growing the companies, you know, not, and, and so to go and invent a product and quit my job and stop basically doing my superpower, which is the growth part, while I waited a year and a half to try and get the product market fit, that was dumb. Like I should have basically stayed in my current job, built the company, built the product behind the scenes, worked crazy hours, not that I was shy about that and still not. And then, and then basically built a product I could sell and then launched the company and raised it, you know, and kind of started, um, you know, going off my payroll and my income and so on. Like I probably could have pulled that one off if I didn't burn so much of my money, just sitting around and watching the devs, you know, build stuff. Not that I was really sitting around, but you get my point. You know, I wasn't able to use my, my superpower. Um, one other quick one, I, I think worth mentioning, you know, that was the, um, you know, biggest, biggest lesson I learned in terms of just pain, painful, um, you know, uh, failed business experience. Um, one that was uh, less expensive, but probably just as valuable, if not more valuable. Um, I've only been in one lawsuit in my entire life. Um, and this was probably in the maybe late 90s, or early 2000s. And uh, I built this web project for a company and uh, it had gone wrong. You know, I was one at the time, it was the biggest web project I'd ever built. It was a couple hundred thousand bucks, which is pretty good for a probably 21 year old or whatever it was at the time, 22 years old, maybe. And, um, and basically it, it, it went sideways and this guy was unhappy. He, he sued me. I was convinced he was a big disaster and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to fight him. And, uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. My father didn't want to help me because he wanted me in terms of guidance because he thought this was a great entrepreneurial lesson for me. So he encouraged me to go figure it out on my own, real trial by fire stuff here. I hired a lawyer. I didn't know anything about lawyers because I never hired one before. So I hired a, a real estate lawyer to defend me in a litigation lawsuit because I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, he'd done some litigation, but I didn't know the difference between any of these people. And I guess he'd done some of it enough to say, sure, I'll do this job. Um, that we started going horribly off the rails and I realized it was going to get really, really costly for me. I was very stressed. I went, went to my father for advice. He said, okay, let me, you, you screwed up. Let me point you to the right, the right guys. Got this very top firm called Ackerman Centerfit involved, big, like really, really kind of big, scary lawyer type. They immediately start turning the case around. So now this guy's on the back foot. And in the end, basically he got nothing. I got nothing. Uh, that we've negotiated down to a stalemate, except this stonking huge legal bill. And, and I remember being in the you know, 20 something floor office of Ackerman Center Fit and you know, big floor to ceiling windows, like overlooking you know, Fort Lauderdale. And, uh, and I remember say it's like a 30 person boardroom kind of thing. And I walk over and they had this coffee station. I grab one of the coffee mugs. I go, 
I'm taking this coffee mug. I was like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. And I was like, and I guess if someone can, someone get me a marker, please. And I got, I, and I handed them the coffee mug around. I had all the lawyers that were involved sign it. And then I wrote around the bottom of the ring, uh, the world's only, you know, whatever it was, $100,000 coffee mug. And, uh, and so now anytime anyone wants to talk to you about lawsuits, I'm like, let me share a little coffee mug I have. I'm like, this is why you don't, <laughs> you don't want to get into a lawsuit because the only thing you're really going to get, only, only thing you're going to end up with is a hundred thousand or a coffee mug from a, from a, um, a lawyer. And I've actually, uh, it was an expensive lesson financially, but I actually think that coffee mug has saved me a fortune. I pull that thing out with clients that if they start talking tough and, and looks like things are maybe going in a funny direction. And I find it, I found it to be an exceptionally useful negotiation tool to be like, we should just work this out between us now, because otherwise we're going to write a massive, it's not, it's going to cost us both a fortune in legal fees. So good lesson to learn, but a painful one and expensive, unless you want, unless you like really expensive coffee mugs. <laughs> I can say I've never been in a lawsuit. Congrats. And I think part of it is not being in America for my entire adult life. Although I did get screwed by a guy I raised money for. I raised a 150,000 seed round yeah. for him in China. He was American and I got my commission. It was like $7,500, yeah. whatever. And part of the deal was, and it was verbal. That was yeah. my problem. We didn't have a written contract. Or it was it was a like a, a wink wink nod yeah, nod kind of verbal aspect, but like it's not written in the contract that if that guy gave him more money or that guy brought somebody else in, I would con I would still get the commission yeah. at the same rate. Well, the guy ended up giving him another hundred and fifty thousand like a month later, but the CEO didn't tell me that he got it, so he fucked me out of another seventy five hundred. Yeah. This is while he hired me full time to <laughs> that do is pretty cheeky. work for him. Right. So I raised him the money. He then could afford to hire a team. He built the team. He included me in the yeah. team. And then he fucked me out of another commission. Yeah. Not cool. I, and once I, once I found out two months later, I was like, fuck you. And I left. <laughs> um, the thing that was funny about it was like, it was a blockchain company. Mm -hmm. And it, this was in 2016. Mm -hmm. 20, yeah, 2016. He wanted me to build an ICO launchpad. And so like, I was building a system for us to be able to help other companies launch their ICOs. Mm -hmm. I took that shit with me. That's yeah. the only upside. Like the guy was an idiot. He basically paid me to learn how to start and launch an ICO. Yeah. Oh. And I took that knowledge with me and I brought it to a ton of other clients and he got none of it because he was a greedy little moron. Like he, he helped me in fact, quite a lot. Yeah, well, the one, one, I think the important lesson I think you and I both kind of outlined here is that, you know what? even when you have these moments where it might cost you a lot financially, at least put the knowledge to use. You know, I can tell you like every one of those things, even when I you know, lost a bunch of money, like I either saved money or made more money later because of that experience. And that's why I was saying, you know, like my dad's bit of advice to me, like I really took that to heart. Like it's just, it's not the end of the world to, to have these, have these experiences. What is the end of the world? If you watch so, especially when you watch someone else, you're like, and you watch them like, you know, driving off the cliff over and over and over again. And you're like, are you not learning anything from these experiences? Um, those are the people I worry about, frankly. What's the first thing you do in the morning? And don't say pee or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first thing I do is 
I hate to, I hate to miss. I, I literally like I walk straight. I literally go to the I, I do my morning bathroom routine kind of thing, and then I go straight to my desk. You know, I I, I basically I have my first meeting. I get up at seven, and my first meeting is at seven thirty. Um, and then, and then typically my wife will bring me a, a, a cup of tea and, 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 uh, you know, something but before eight, but yeah, I'm, I'm like right into the thick of it. Um, as, as soon as I wake up. Okay. I typically stop my late, I stop my late night stuff. So I used to love working to like two and three in the morning oh. and now I don't work at late at night at all. And I just start really early. Fair enough. I typically, by my standards anyway, I'm like, I, my, I was like infamously nocturnal most of my life. And that's kind of flipped for me recently. And I, I like it. I realized that the big thing for me was it wasn't that I liked working late at night or early in the morning. I like it when the house is quiet. Mm. That's what I realized. Like, and it doesn't matter whether I got up early or stay up late. I just like it when the house is quiet. I find that I'm very focused at that time. Fair enough. So then what's the last thing you do at night? Yeah, so I'm obsessed with reading online news. So typically, I'll 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 find myself kind of you know going through Google News. Um, you know, is one of the last things I do. Um, I try and let, to read uh, less and less kind of world and political news because I find that it just stresses me out and uh, makes me uh, crazy. Um, and um, and and more about like business news, tech news, innovation news, science news. Um, I like reading about computer hardware or if there's some subject I'm in, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I, I spend it, I basically spend that time trying to get smart, um, you know, consume, consume some form of information. I kind of do that all throughout the day. My day, I'm like, I, I've spoken to a lot of people like, oh, I've got like an hour that I focus on. I'm like, I, I just, I can't, I, my ADD makes it impossible. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's funny. I used to be like that. And, uh, because it was like, it's like an addiction for me. And so I installed this plugin on uh, on my browser called Stay Focused, and it basically put I put all the news sites in it and all the social sites, and I allow my and it, you can put a limit on them, and I allow myself basically ten minutes on those between eight a.m. to like six p.m., and then basically I can't get to them, uh, you know, or if I do, it cuts me off, and then if I try and visit them, it actually is like it literally says like, shouldn't you be working right now? And so reading news was like such a twitch behavior for me um, as like a, like a, just a habit of like a compulsive habit that I find myself, even though I know that plugins there, that I'll just be like control T new tab and like I'll instantly type in like some new site. They're like, no, no, no. And that, and it's made me like exponentially more uh, productive. And I think that's probably why I binge news right really late at night now. Well, the, the issue for me isn't that stuff. It's that I've got 10 messenger apps and they're all on my phone. I turned all the notifications off on my messenger apps. See, I tried to do that and I found myself getting more anxious because what if somebody messages me and I don't know because I don't get a notification. So I, I, uh, I, so I basically, I kept, I kept one on, uh, so text messages, the only thing that sends me notifications still. And I, and I, and so on the weekends, it's, you know, I basically, I just, I had so many messenger apps like you that the notificate constant stream of notifications was making me so unproductive. And so I, um, have basically multiple blocked out windows during the day in my calendar. And I use that for email and Slack and I just respond to it all in a really focused manner. Otherwise, you know, what happens is you let people basically drag you around by your nose on what they, they think you're supposed to be focused on. 
versus what you think you're supposed to be focused on. Right. And and um, there's nothing that's so urgent that people can't wait like three. I have those intervals every three hours, basically. So if people can't wait three hours, then they should call me. It's like if it's really a crisis, like you should pick up the phone and go old school. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? For me, it's mostly just like friends and family and stuff that like the, the hardest thing is the freaking time zone difference. Like when I was in Asia, it's yeah, easy. I, I knew everyone's you, 12 you, hours uh, behind. You're going to have to turn it off. Yeah. Well, uh, I, uh, I, I strongly recommend, uh, you know, just, just killing it. It's, it's the only way you can be productive, in my opinion. What I do now is usually my phone is on silent. So I, I, I turn the notifications back on, but I have the phone on silent. So the notifications happen, but like if I'm doing something like this, my phone's over there. I don't know what's going on. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not mm -hmm. going to look. So sometimes I'll, like if I'm with a friend for lunch or whatever, um, or I'm on a date or whatever it is, like nothing gets through because it's on silent. So I don't even get a, a vibration mm -hmm. or anything. So I don't know mm -hmm. that it's happening. And for some reason, that's, that makes me feel a lot better than just not having any notifications with the phone not on silent. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're good at using that, go for it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I get insane amounts of Slack messages every day, and I just that in particular I had to turn off. Hmm. Yeah, my team doesn't normally message me too much. I'll get like one or two messages a day on Slack because most of the oh, I'm they talking don't like hundreds me. of messages or channels and stuff. I mean, I just had to block them all out. So what my team does is, even though we've got like a there's like a management channel, right? We do a little bit of conversation about the tech there or like the QA or the marketing, but a lot of the daily stuff, they've got like private channels that I'm not in. So, so they don't bother me unless it's like a management thing. So then my question is from the first time you started a company until now, how have you had to change yourself in order to stay relevant in what you're doing? Hmm. Um, I would say that the biggest thing that I've had to change when I reflect on my entrepreneurial career is um, the, the constant, I'm going to kind of divide these in two things. So the constant that made me successful throughout my career is that I'm extremely passionate about things that I work on. I care about things. I'm inspired by things. And other people say that my kind of passion level for the things that I'm excited about is very infectious and for that reason that people want to you know kind of align themselves with me for you know that that reason or clients want to you know like they they can tell i care about my craft or, or whatever it is i'm working on um what i think i've had to temper throughout those years is um i've always been a bit of a, a, a you know a wild wild child and a bit of a, a wild spirit i've always you know um you know like like to have my fair, my fair share of fun and I think as, as I've um, gone through my career, I've realized that, you know, you, you, uh, you have to be careful about how you um, project that out into the world. And so I think, you know, what you don't want to be perceived is, is like super passionate and excitable, but almost like a, like a not, I don't mean to stereotype in a negative way here, but like an artist type that like, yeah, they're crazy creative, but like they can't really see things through or, um, you know, so I think um, what I, I really focused on is 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 my is basically my my discipline um, in terms of like you know things like we just talked about where I'm like really disciplined about like my focus time because I I can't let my my ADD get the best of me. You know, I needed to make sure that even though I you know I've got a bit of a wild streak, it's like 
you know, I can't let that kind of stuff like impact my work or impact people's perception of me because they, you know, especially when I'm not out partying up like I used to be, you know, in my, my, my earlier parts of my career, but I definitely think like that kind of stuff, um, while fun, and I, I, I knew everyone, you know, loved, loved being with me and, and having fun with me. I think that, you know, you have to be really careful as an entrepreneur. Like it, it, in some cases, it can damage your credibility. And, and um, you know, finding this balance between being liked and, and, um, and being loved and liked and people wanting to engage with you, but also being trusted. I'm not even going to say respected. Being trusted, I think, is really important. You know, whether that's a client trusting you with their money or in their time and, and, uh, and but to get a project done if you're in a service business or that is in a, in a potential employee who trusts you with their career and their livelihood or it is a investor trusting you with their money and their time, and their credibility. You know, it, you it, it's you have to be really conscious of this um, the biggest the, the moment that inflection point really happened for me was when um, you know I had a digital agency called iChameleon. It was my second uh, notable business. And uh, you know, and that was acquired by, by Sapient. And um, I was uh, you know, a young director there and then became one of the youngest VPs in the, in the history of the business. And, um, and I was still going through this wild streak. And I realized at the time that you know, this was my first exposure to like big corporate America and I realized as much as I liked and got on well with all those people, this was the first time I really got exposed to corporate politics, that the other people were using, you know, kind of my, my wild streak to kind of like chip away at my credibility in some ways, uh, because that's what, that's what, you know, crappy people do, frankly. And I just realized that like, you know what, I was like, I need to not, I need to be really conscious of my personal brand. Um, and, and, um, and just, you know, how I project myself out into the world. And I think it made me um, pull things in a little bit. And I can, I can already feel the, the, the quote unquote fun people out there going, oh, you shouldn't let any other people dictate, you know, how you are in this stuff. But you know what? It's easy to say that. But if, when you're an entrepreneur, you are accountable to the people that work for you. I, I believe you know, in, in, in uh, servant leadership, like you are accountable to your investors. It's not just you. If you want to just go doing that and don't care what anyone ever thinks about you, that's fine. But don't do a business where other people depend on you or you're accountable to other people. And then you can do whatever the hell you want. But when you do have other people that depend on you and you're accountable to and you're responsible for and you are responsible for the people that work for you as an entrepreneur, then you, you know, you, you got to be more polished um, all the time. Um, and I hated that because, again, as a guy with a wild streak, kind of acknowledging that ruffled my feathers on every possible level um, that I had to conform or at least be a little more careful in how I, I put myself out in the world. Um, but I don't regret it. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's an important, it's an important step. And um, yeah, that, that would be it. It's, it's definitely, it's I'm, I'm very different from where I was, uh, you know, whenever I started doing this uh, 20, 20 odd years ago now. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you for all of us. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, my pleasure, Sean. I always, like I said, I, I'm, I'm always happy to chat with you. You've, I enjoy chatting with you. You're just a nice guy, and I, I like, I like, uh, I like, I like catching up with you whenever possible. So I do have to run. I, I moved a whole bunch of stuff around so I could talk a bit more longer. Uh, but I'm glad we got the tech to work in the end. No worries. I appreciate it.